0: Hello and welcome fellow time travellers, I salute you one and all as we race towards the summit of season one, and yes there is going to be a season two, thank the Lord. Something similar, uh, but on a broader canvas. Anyway, more on that next week. First off I need and want to say a big, big thank you to everyone who's signed up to my Patreon site, your help and support makes this podcast series possible. So thank you, and I do appreciate it, and I mean that sincerely. If you're not a member yet and you want to join, simply go to patreon.com and search for me by name, Neil Oliver, and sign up. Every week you get an exclusive video. I film it here at my home in Stirling, and the videos are an eclectic mix. They're about how history and the present day collide and inform each other. History and comment, I suppose you could say, in summary. And there's a touch of my philosophy of life thrown in for good measure, whether you want it or not. Right now, it's time for this week's Love Letter to the British Isles as we discover dark secrets beneath the floor of one of Britain's most iconic buildings. Cue the music. And then the sword swung and her head was parted from her body. In this episode, we steal a glimpse as awful secrets are swept under the carpet. A mighty fortress almost a thousand years old, dwarfed by a thriving modern metropolis of steel and glass. Now it's spick span and perfectly welcoming, but once it was a place to dread. Queen Anne Boleyn's head was severed with a sword here. Lords, ladies, and all manner of folk met savage ends behind its walls. All in all, it's a window into how we used to live and a mark of how much we've changed. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me, and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the British Isles.
1: Just before we get started today, as this is the penultimate episode of season one, can I ask how it feels to be on the brink of drawing this million-year-old story to a close?
0: Well, it's it's unexpectedly emotional. As you well know, Paul, we started doing this well, a couple of years ago in lockdown, m- mostly to keep us sane, so that, you know, apart from anything else, we felt that we were doing something creative, and then, of course, time has passed and we've got an audience out there who've come along with us um, and there's been so much feedback, so much communication back and forth that it's it's become something much more meaningful and real than I expect either of us thought it ever would be. It now feels like such a real thing and I'm I'm so pleased that we did it and so much so. That we should definitely keep this going. We'll be doing number 99 today, 100 next week, um, but I think there's so much invested in it that there's no reason to stop now. And I mean, hopefully, when we get to uh, episode 100, we'll wrap it up in a way that I think it deserves, and I think that ought to involve, as far as possible, feedback from listeners. Ideally, I'd, I'd like it if we could round up some questions. You know, maybe find out which places from the love letter have affected people most and why. I'd, I'd love to know how many people out there have visited over the years, whether people have been inspired to go and see places because of the love letter. All of it. I'd just like to hear about it, and I think there's surely a way in which we can we can round it up and then we can also use it as a bridge or a springboard into season two.
1: Great. Okay, so we'll we'll give the email address out at the end so people can send questions in, and you know there's the Instagram and YouTube channel which has got the links on it as well, so that we can start drawing questions in and we'll we'll, we'll pull it all together.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it, I mean anything anything from the love letter really, uh, and, and even things that go off at tangents. I don't mind. It, whatever. If it's made people think about other places, if it's made people. I draw on their own memories of, of special places. All of these, all these places in the in the love letter are meaningful to me. Anything the love letter has made people think about is potentially grist to the mill. So let, let's hear it.
1: Okay, great. I'll get the ball rolling on that. And now, can you give us a quick recap of the last episode and tell us where we are this week?
0: Yep. In the last episode, we met a man obsessed by colour and light who helped make the world a better place. This week we're taking a look at the flip side of the coin. The high drama, brutality and secrecy that happened across centuries behind its 4.6 metre thick stone walls. We're at the Tower of London. Fittingly enough, I suppose, number 99, um, it's it's a place of great significance, I think. Uh, well, to me, but I think it's a place that it's worth spending some time thinking about what this place means in the bigger picture of the history of Britain, the story of the British Isles. If you go to the Tower of London, which surely everyone's got a picture of that in their heads. You know, it's it's one of the most photographed landmarks in the country. But if, if you go inside the Tower of London, you may or may not have paid attention to the church that's inside it like a little chapel, it's called St. Peter Advincula. St. Peter is the big fisherman, obviously, one of uh, Jesus' favourites. Um, Advincula is Latin, and it means in chains, and it, it, it actually it commemorates or it remembers when St. Peter was was held captive by Herod Agrippa. And it's a hugely telling place. It's small in terms of its physical dimensions, if you were just to put your head round the door and look inside, it's just a it's just a church, like the rest of the Tower of London. It's beautifully kept. You know the Tower of London is is beautifully maintained. It, I mean, for something that's you know whatever a thousand years old, it looks brand new. It uh, does look brand new. Uh, no, it? it does. And uh, I'm always struck by how perfect it looks, uh, which is a great testament to the to the people that are looking after it. But. If you pause to to find out a a little bit more about it, St Peter Adventula, Inside the Tower of London, it's a central point. It's like a a, a singularity, I think, in the story of the British Isles. But we'll get to it. I'd like to start with a quote, actually, someone else's words. A writer, Thomas Babington Macaulay, uh, wrote... The History of England, uh, published in 1848, and I'll read It's a fairly lengthy quote. In truth, there is no sadder spot on earth than this little cemetery. Death is there associated not as in Westminster Abbey and St Paul's with genius and virtue, with public veneration and with imperishable renown, not as in our humblest churches and churchyards with everything that is most endearing in social and domestic charities, but with whatever is darkest in human nature and in human destiny, with the savage triumph of implacable enemies, with inconstancy, the ingratitude, the cowardice of friends, with all the miseries of fallen greatness and blighted fame, thither have been carried through successive ages by the rude hands of jailers, without one mourner following, the bleeding relics of men who had been the captains of armies, the leaders of parties, the oracles of senates, and the ornaments of courts." Now, if that doesn't set you up for a story about somewhere dark and gloomy, I don't know what does. I, I, as I mentioned, you know, the Tower of London, believe it or believe it not, it's a thousand years old. In truth, I was there not that long ago. I've visited it, been inside it, I've done the guided tour, I've been there under all sorts of circumstances. But every time I go now, I think about how it's dwarfed by everything around it. You know, if you remember how dominant and domineering a presence it must once have had, and for the longest time. But of course, now it's setting down by the River Thames. There's all these enormous glass and steel towers in its vicinity that dwarf it completely. So that the context for the Tower of London is all wrong. You know, to the extent that I think it looks like a toy in a funny sort of way. I had, a, I had a, a little toy fort when I was a wee boy. You know, it was made of, you know, painted cardboard, really painted plywood with a turret. And there's a little push button where you could make a light come on behind a little red plastic window. And, and I had soldiers that I could put on the battlements. And every time I see the Tower of London now, it reminds me of that play thing of mine. It just doesn't look real. Ironically, I think it's partly because it's so well looked after that what was once a moat that would have been filled with water from the river is empty now. So you've just got this grassy banked gutter, really, and the grass is (laughs) perfectly manicured. The masonry is beautifully maintained. There's lots of towers and all the towers have these fussy black lead caps on them. They look quite cute. They're quite kitsch to my eyes. So that if you, were, if you were to encounter the Tower of London without any backstory, if you just arrived in London and you didn't know anything about it, you would get no sense of the reality of what the Tower of London was all about. You have to go inside and hear the story before it would dawn on you what this place really was, what it really meant, what it still means. The fact that it is just a pretty tourist attraction now is just a consequence of time. You know, time's a great healer, as the as the cliche goes. And if you allow enough time to pass, old hurts and old wickedness, however severe, gradually becomes harder to sense, harder to see. But if you pick up a history book and read about the Tower of London, you you quickly realise that for centuries. It was a place of terror. The last place anyone wanted to get taken was the Tower of London. It's like the Black Lubyanka or something. It's synonymous with, with terror and cruelty. And it's such a mistake, really, to underestimate it on account of the way that it appears now which is largely as a a tourist attraction, when you go inside, it's on a nice day especially, you know, it's full of laughing kids and people with sunglasses on and people just strolling around and it can be hard to get to the heart of the matter. But I think it's so important and to some extent, you have to carry it inside, you have to carry the knowledge of the place in there with you. And I would say, and, and I say this because I've had the opportunity to do so, if you can, see it at night because at night, on a winter's night, darkness becomes a blanket that covers much of modern London in a way. And it makes you pay more attention just to the dimensions within the walls. And so I would go at night, and if you go at night, you can catch the Ceremony of the Keys, which is well worth seeing, not least because the Ceremony of the Keys has been happening night after night since before anyone can remember it's been going on for hundreds of years. It's lock-up time, basically. It's it's the ceremony that's enacted every night when the tower is shutting down. And what you get, if you're standing in the right place, when it, it starts to happen, the chief warder uh, carries the keys, the, literally the keys to lock up the tower, to lock it from the inside. And he comes to the main guard and he asks for the escort for the keys. And uh, so out come all these soldiers... Uh, one of them carrying a tallow lantern on the end of a long pole. And then you just watch, there's all all this sort of urgent, fast-paced marching around then goes on as as they go through this ancient choreography. You know, they move between various gates and, you know, through the shadows cast by the towers and you hear them shouting, Halt, who comes there? The keys, whose keys? Queen Elizabeth's keys. Advance Queen Elizabeth's keys all's well. God preserve Queen Elizabeth, amen. You know, there's this whole the ritual is enacted of them of them shouting back and forth to one another and it feels it feels like theater i suppose it is theater but only again it's only because what was once life and death it's been sort of left behind like a rock pool you know the, the tide of history has gone out leaving this little ceremony that's out of context it's been cut off from the world in which it once mattered I was there one night for a do, you know, I was there for a dinner in the, in the Tower of London and I had to do a wee talk and say a few words, that kind of thing uh, and it was, it was quite the feeling to be in there after hours when the rest of the world was, was locked out and in the darkness, in the darkness, when you know about the Tower of London the old power of the place starts to come back you know, it's haunted by memories, the Tower and you, you see it in the darkness and it just, it still has the power there's walls within walls within the tower and within the inner ward, in the heart of the tower in over in the northwest corner by what's called the Waterloo Barracks All these buildings have been named and renamed over the centuries You can imagine why there's now a barracks called the Waterloo Barracks You know, it's remembering the, the battle But there, in that corner, is what is called technically the Royal Chapel of St Peter Advincula St Peter in Chains The building that you're looking at was commissioned by Henry VIII but it's well known and it's documented that there was a chapel of one sort or another on the spot long before the coming of the of the Normans who built the Tower of London. So there was always a place of worship there. You know, so that, that's been swallowed up. But there was always a chapel, not the chapel that you see now, but a place of worship was in there on more or less that spot and in that way of churches, you know, one gets knocked down or neglected long enough that it has to be replaced, but... The one you're looking at now was was commissioned by by Big Henry. By the time of Queen Victoria, it was falling apart, she, she, and she ordered a renovation. The, the building of the of the chapel was was neglected, amongst other things. The floor, you, there's old illustrations actually, there's old etchings and drawings of the place in its uh, in its decrepitude, and you, the floor was all sagging the boards and were slumping into cavities beneath. You know, so there were spaces underneath the floor and everything was sort of subsiding into them.
1: It's amazing that it was forgotten.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we, live in a, we've, we have lived in a time where ancient buildings, a lot of them are maintained. They're identified as, you know, important and they're looked after, but you don't have to go that far back into the past to find these places going through periods of neglect when there isn't money in the coffers if times are tight and budgets are stretched and money has to go elsewhere you know these places go through have gone through periods of falling down <laughs> they didn't they, they haven't always been the tower has not always been maintained in the perjink way that it is now what's been restored has paid attention to what was there and what could be saved was saved the roof beams of chestnut wood were hidden behind plaster that was all stained and crumbling. Thomas Babington Macaulay, who who was the the writer of the quote that we we began this, he lamented the barbarous stupidity which has transformed this interesting little church into the likeness of a meeting house in a manufacturing town, which gives you a good sense of its appearance after a long period of neglect. Queen Victoria insisted that the place be restored, and it was. Now, it's beautifully looked after, There's no concealing what St Peter Advincula was and why it's notorious. I think the simplest way I can express it is to say that it's a shallow grave. It's the little cemetery that Macaulay was referring to and underneath the floor, in a plot just six yards before, right in front of the high altar, underneath the floor are the remains of 15 of the great and the good of the land. kind of like swept under the carpet is the reality of what was going on all of them convicted of treason in truth or in fact they're in fiction and they were dispatched because that's what the Tower of London was all about the Tower of London was where people were brought to be broken to be tortured to be hidden away and often finally to be done away with and usually when they were done away with their bodies didn't leave the tower a hole was found for them, and they were put out of sight and out of mind. And so it is inside the chapel of St. Peter ad Now, believe this or believe it not, but in that little plot, six yards by four, there's Queen Anne Boleyn, Henry's second wife, mother of Elizabeth I. She was executed on a scaffold when Henry was finished with her when he decided that she was no longer the love of his life, far from it, and she was to be done away with, to make way for wife number three. A scaffold was erected on the north side of the keep, and a a specialist swordsman was brought all the way from Calais to do the job. And in the French style, she knelt in front of him with her head up. Pause for a moment and think about that. You know, Anne Boleyn at that time was a young woman. She was the mother of a little girl who would go on to be Queen Bess, good Queen Bess. England's most significant female monarch, you would say. And yet, what was done with her? You know, she was made to kneel on a scaffold with her head up and either a bag on her head or a blindfold in no small part, so that the people doing away with her didn't have to look her in the eye. And then the sword swung, and her head was parted from her body. A, heads, a severed head's a heavy thing. It lands with quite a thump. Heavy as a bowling ball. Hard to pick up if you're only using the hair. You know, it's quite a heft to it. And her head landed on straw that had been spread to soak up the to soak up the blood. And then without ceremony and much respect, and while her ladies-in-waiting wept in horror, her body and her severed head were bundled together and placed, not into a coffin, but inside a chest of elmwood that had previously been used for storing longbows. She wasn't even put in a coffin. So her body was put in and then her head was put in beside her. So in that in that repurposed box, the mother of Queen Elizabeth I was was quickly set into space in that little rectangle in front of the altar, and dirt kicked in upon her. Imagine, Anne Boleyn, that's how she ended. That's the end of that story.
1: Of a young woman being decapitated in central London.
0: I know.
1: In a place that's now surrounded by roads with cars driving past and offices. I know, I
0: know. I know. And inside, inside the Tower of London, that happened again and again and again and again. That's what the Tower of London was all about. Catherine Howard, who was Henry's fifth wife, she's there. Uh, she was dispatched not with a sword but with an axe. But another decapitation. Lady Jane Grey, who's famously queen for nine days, she's in there. Close by is her father-in-law, John Dudley, the Duke of Northumberland. He was a powerful player in court. And his machinations around Lady Jane are led to her being dispatched. Uh, Lady Jane Grey's father, Henry Grey, first Duke of Suffolk, he's in there, all parted from their heads. On and on goes the roll call. Saint Thomas More, he's there. Robert Devereux, Earl of Essex, and, and a sometime favourite of Queen Elizabeth, he's in there. They're all in that same little patch of ground. You walk up the the nave of the little chapel, and you and you look at this. You look at the stones, the flagstones that are there, and these fifteen are under there. Anne Boleyn, Catherine Howard, St. Thomas More, they're all just bundled into this place famously the Scots get everywhere and there's a few of them in St Peter's in that same space or if they're not exactly in the same hole they're they're nearby there are four Jacobite lords whose luck ran out namely William Boyd, 4th Earl of Kilmarnock George Mackenzie, the 3rd Earl of Cromarty Arthur Elphinstone, the Lord Balmarino and finally the guy they called the Fox Simon Fraser, Lord Lovett uh, and in 1747, when he was done away with, he's gone down in history as the last man beheaded in Britain. But these are all headless people. These are all people that were done away with with the sword and the axe. Actually, underneath the altar is James Scott, first Duke of Monmouth. Now we met him before. Another of the love letters came from the battlefield of Sedgemoor, which was the climax of a rebellion. James Scott was the eldest of the illegitimate sons of King Charles II. He led the rebellion against his uncle. His uncle James II was king by that point. Uh, That was in 1685. And he was captured close by the battlefield of Sedgemoor and dragged to London and executed on Tower Hill. The axe was wielded that day by Jack Ketch, who either through clumsiness or cruelty needed five blows of the axe to part James's head from his body. So a, a messy butchery. For people interested and in, in who like a maybe a prose style that's not so popular nowadays, Walter George Bell, he's a journalist actually, but he also wrote books about London. And one of them, it's just a little piece, a little thing, it's called The Tower of London and it was published in 1921 and Apart from anything else, it's interesting because a lot of what he's remembering of London no longer exists, because he wrote it in 1921. So then came the Blitz, and the rest of the devastation of the Second World War, and so a lot of the the London that he describes is just gone. But there's hints of it and traces of it if you if you read his account. But obviously the Tower, that's the the, the centerpiece of the book. You know that's there, and the way that Bell writes about St. Peter's recalls a a style of prose and and maybe a way of thinking that's as long gone as as the London that he remembers. And I quote, One stands silent before these dead when thoughts run back and the mind is filled with the large part which they in their lives have played, filling out so many pages of our history, and the idea seems grotesque that this tiny plot should hold all. Where else in the world does so little space hold so much, telling so poignantly of the end of all human grandeur. I love that. I love that turn of phrase. But, you know, back to Lord Macaulay. um, As he said in that opening quote, St Peter Advincula, at the heart of the Tower of London, is the antithesis of Westminster Abbey. You go in there and the dead are proudly cradled. It's about celebrating their names and holding them carefully and gently. Uh, but behind the walls of the Tower of London is the other side of London, and in some ways it's the other side of us. Because in there, in the shadows, at night, and even in the daylight, there's a palpable remnant of the cruelty of the past. And I would urge anyone that goes to the Tower, the Tower's fantastic, it's, 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 you spend a day there, been guided around it there's so much history so much of british history has passed through that nexus but make your way to st peter's and stand outside even and if you've got the stomach for it go inside and make your way to the the marble tiles in front of the the altar and know and know that beneath them is the savagery that's part of our past You know, the rule of law, the right to live in peace, the right to be protected from tyranny. These are not natural states. You know, people have felt for a number of generations now that the way we live here in Britain is in the natural order of things. That if you wait long enough, this happens, and it doesn't. And if you don't know that, you've only got to look around at the wider world. The wider world is not like this. There's a handful of countries where you could have even an outside chance of a life such that we have been able to lead here. And the rest of it is run by gangsters and criminals and thugs. And it's important when you live in peace to remember that peace is not natural. And to take for granted what we have had here is a grievous mistake. And I feel that very strongly at the moment. We are seeing the rise of tyrannies pay attention to the ways in which the peace and the rights that we have had are easily taken away. We, we got to where we are at the end of a long, bloody road. We've seen it in the love letter, we've been at battlefields, we've talked about wars, we've talked about dictatorial kings and queens and their ways of doing things. You don't have to reach too far back into history, really, to find predecessors and ancestors who smelt the blood spilt by the butcher's axe in places like the Tower of London and the way back to that way of being that way of living is straight and well laid and easily taken if you don't pay attention you could absent-mindedly join the slip road that leads you onto the motorway that takes you to that kind of way of living and that way of being and there's a great line about i wear a suit of armor made only of my mistakes Our way of being is the product of us having learned the lessons of bad times and things done by bad people. But because we did learn the lessons, we made it into the way of life that has been here in this archipelago for just a few generations. It is the product of learning from mistakes. But if you forget the mistakes, you just make them again and it's so important and that's why a place like that's why a place like St Peter Advincula inside the Tower of London is worth paying attention to because it's a reminder it's a reminder that what still happens every day in other parts of the world well we did it too it used to happen here and it's only been not happening for the blink of an eye and to live your life thinking that none of it could ever happen here again. It's a terrible mistake. And it's worth m- m- stating, you know, we've moved beyond Christianity. Christianity shaped the culture uh, more than anything else in the British Isles during the last 2,000 years. But those days are gone and we are secular now. Ours is a secular society, a secular civilization. And so we are blown in the wind of political can't. We're at the mercy of politicians all the time because there is no underpinning Ideologies such as Christianity, that's gone now. It's political ideologies that that govern our fates. And the order that we still enjoy is taken for granted by too many of us. And it's so important to remember that it's basically built on top of the agony of our past. And you can't freewheel. The act of maintaining what we have is an action. It has to be something that is done consciously, mindfully, every moment of every day. As a society, if we want to continue living the way we have been living, we have to remember how this happened and we have to maintain it every day. So you go to the Tower of London and you step inside St Peter Vincula, and you think about the way it used to be here, just over the hill into history. And you think, if you don't want that to come again, pay attention. we grow up in becomes part of our physical being. Other places seep into our soul. Wind blown and storm washed, full of sky and sound, this shingled headland has left a permanent mark on me. Plants and animals thrive here. Fishermen, artists, photographers, dog walkers and pop stars and the curious come seeking inspiration, peace or supper. Not one but two nuclear power stations. A fragile feeling place reminding me of Britain itself. Next time in my Love Letter to the British Isles. Okay, first off, here's the email to send in any questions if you want to ask me about this season of the Love Letter to the British Isles Neil Oliver Podcast at gmail.com. That's Neil Oliver Podcast, all lowercase, all one word, at gmail.com. And we'll include as many as possible in the special episode. And a quick advert to help support this podcast and the next one, and to get access to exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I'd love to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. Social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy... Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Allthorpe Studios. The graphics are by Paul Ploughman. And a special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production.